Welcome to The Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shockley. And today we are back with the rest of our conversation with the Reverend Ian Lash. Ian is an autistic priest in the Episcopal Church who takes great joy in living out the priestly vocation to serve as pastor, priest, and teacher. His primary areas of interest in ministry include Christian formation and discipleship, virtue ethics, disability theology, and the liturgy or worship of the church. He is married to Lauren, also an Episcopal priest, and they have two young boys. one of the few people I think I've encountered who had discovered and spent time thinking about, and it sounds like to some extent, at least internalizing and incorporating any sort of disability theology pre-diagnosis. And a diagnosis can be a life-changing event for good and, and bad reasons. Like it is usually a bit of a mix. Sure. Are you willing to share a little bit about what how the, any of that knowledge was helpful if it gave you a framework or if it was a little bit like rediscovering all of it again, knowing more about yourself? Uh, that's a really good question. I think there are some ways in which it was probably very helpful, right? Um, I think particularly, so for me, my diagnosis was, if anything, a relief, um, and, and a lot of autos- autistic adults will say something similar um, to me. The way I always describe it is it was like a bunch of really weird stars. Um, you know, there were a lot, a lot of stars in my life that were really kind of bizarre or outside the norm or that sort of thing. But realizing I'm autistic made me realize that that make up a constellation, right? That there's some pattern to that. Um, so for me, in a lot of ways, it was really helpful And I think part of that was because I had already managed to get out from under the bad theological anthropology that I went to seminary with, right? If my sense of self had been totally tied up in cognition still, um, and I'm not saying I'm completely away from that or completely over that, but if if that's solely how I defined what it means for me to bear the image of God, that would have been much more difficult for me that moment of diagnosis. It was particularly helpful though, when talking about my son's diagnosis, because I had maybe gotten out from under that for myself, but hadn't, but there's something different about coming to grips with the fact that all the ways in which my life was difficult will be all the ways in which my son's life will be difficult and they, and possibly even more so. Right. Um, and so I think for me, having encountered disability theology already and grappled with disability theology already, um, and, and really I'll, I'll be honest and say, I've really poured myself into it exponentially more so since my son was diagnosed, but having that background meant it made it so that this was 
a practical issue and not an existential one, if that makes sense. That I already had the underlying theology that this didn't feel like the ground completely shifting under my feet. Um, but, and so all that really remained was, wow, there are some ways in which his life is going to be more difficult than I wish it would. Um, and what are the ways in which we can, we can tackle that head on and, and give him the supports that he needs rather than what does this mean? <laughs> you know, what does this mean for him as an individual and for him as a child of God? Um, I didn't have those questions to ask when he was diagnosed. And this, my, my follow-up question to that might be one you, you don't want to answer oh. for any sort of reason. Sure. Um, because you and your wife are both clergy, so this means um, you have a, a large church community that is sometimes overly invested in your children, I assume. Sure. How is navigating that? especially given that you had some of the theological framework to know that some of the responses you would receive were rooted in, you know, a theological anthropology that is not beneficial. Yeah, this is, I mean, and this is sort of an ongoing question um, because I, I, there are ways in which I'm already tackling this question where I'm already engaging the topic of disability theology and theological anthropology from the pulpit and in the congregation administratively, even, you know, like looking at the fact that we don't have an accessible campus and how do we remedy that? And what are the things that we can do that, um, that can, that can help mitigate that. Um, so but but at the same time, I mean, I, I've been here, I, I, it's coming up on two years. It'll be two years next month that I've been at St. Francis. Oh, so you've been there really for the pandemic. Yeah, basically. Which is a very different pastoral relationship. It is. And, and, um, and it's just, there are ways in which we, I, I mean, I've only been here two years. My son was diagnosed actually after moving to Savannah. So he's, his diagnosis is, is, uh, a little over a year and a half old. And mine is about, is, a, is right at a year and a half old, or maybe a little less. So there are ways in which we're, we're still learning, um, in some ways. Um, but, but I I'll say it's been relatively recently, even that I, um, that I let the parish know that I was autistic. Um, and, and that's been, <laughs> that's been interesting and actually kind of encouraging. Like the only, you know, didn't get any really bizarre comments or anything like that, you know, um, heard impressive. From, yeah. Um, heard from some people who have, have, a, a uh, one parishioner who has a high number of autistic individuals in a family and, and was really grateful that I said something. Um, and somebody else who had um, a child diagnosed with ADHD when they were an adult. And, and as a result, they also got a diagnosis of ADHD. So I think um, for me at least, and, and this is, I mean, the book is still out. It's only been a matter of weeks since I, since I sort of publicly identified to my congregation as autistic. 
Um, and I don't, you know, it's not something that I intend to drop. Right. Um, but it's, but, but I'm also not going to preach on it every single Sunday. So there's, there are ways in which we're still sort of learning together. Um, and I'm still learning what it means. And, and I have no doubt that there are ways in which there are ways in which I'm going to be, um, falling short of what expectations might be because they've had a lot of, um, neurotypical clergy before, before me. Um, and there are ways in which, um, in which I think that, that they'll appreciate and even already do appreciate some of the gifts that I bring that are direct, like I say, sort of directly attributable to autism. As someone who's also in the the category of disability where it's not immediately apparent, so I mm-hmm. often don't have to disclose until I want to or choose to. Right. I'll say that's usually my experience. By and large, when I talk about migraine or other things, people are like, oh, yeah, no. And it invites other disclosure and, right. and share. So I hope that is most of your experience too. It ha- it has been to this point, um, and I think only I think only good things come of that. Well, I shouldn't say that, right? Because there's always the there's always the chance of ableism rearing its ugly head and people yes. saying, "Well, you wouldn't do this if you weren't X." Um, but for me, I, I mean, to this point, it's all been it's all been positive, and I think it's helped people realize, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems, the reason, you know, one of the biggest issues with the, with the church is that we think that there are a few select subjects that God Mm -hmm. cares about and everything else is, is part of the secular society is part of the rest of the world. Right. And like, if all I, if, if all me saying that I'm autistic does is make people realize, wait, God cares about that too. Um, then, then, I think that's absolutely a good thing. Hannah Gadsby is a late diagnosed autistic mm-hmm. and very famous comedian. And I was listening to her on a podcast. She talked about diagnosis as a shame eraser, mm-hmm. which it sounds like is similar to what you're describing, but I wanted to use her term because I don't think the neurotypical abled world sees that aspect of right of it and this is i mean this is the wildest thing about autism diagnosis right in order to get diagnosed as autistic a it's it's significantly easier for me because i'm a cis white male so my presentation is more the stereotypical historical presentation meaning the way that it's been observed by looking at autistic cis white males right so it was much easier for me than it was than it would be for for any anyone who's not any one of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but on top of that, one of the things that I realized in in the course of this, and I I, I, I I've always been drawn to sort of um, psychology um, and and did a little bit of work for that in my undergrad. And one of the things that's fascinating is the only mechanism that we have for diagnosing this is is the DSM is the diagnostic statistics manual, which is, which is a categorization of mental illness, right? Yep. It's, it's pathology. It's saying this is abnormal. This is, this is deviation from the norm. 
And what's more for autism in particular, and, and really for most mental illness in the DSM, in order to be diagnosed, you have to prove it, it, it has to be clinical, meaning it has to rise to the level of interfering with your quality of life. So we have no way of identifying what, what autism actually is, except by measuring how bad it is, right? That's the only mechanism that we have is, is we've designed something that says, as long as it's this bad or worse, as long as you're suffering this much or worse, then we'll diagnose it. Um, and so the hardest part for me was basically <laughs> proving that this interferes with my quality of life because I have a full-time job. In a lot of ways, it, I, I don't have a ton of support needs. And in some ways, this is because I've, I've adapted um, and have all these sort of built-in um, masking behaviors and, and self-support behaviors um, and good community support. So the hardest part for me was proving that I had suffered enough or that this was, this was bad enough to actually rise to the level of diagnosis. So we have... And what's more, I'm sorry, this is this bordering is no. on a diatribe right now. But, but the other thing about autism is, and and what most neurodivergence advocates and and uh, neurodiversity advocates these days will say is that most of the the mechanisms that we have, or most of the traits that we use to diagnose autism, are not characteristics of autism per se, but they are autistic trauma responses to being wired a certain way to be to being a, a certain way in the world and having the world that is not prepared to adapt to that right that is actually what i was about to say is this is what i have seen as a critique of how we diagnose and <laughs> understand autism is yeah. it's uh, really the result of that trauma yeah and that's the thing is is that's that's a lot of what it is, um, is, is basically we're, we're, we have a really hard time because we haven't designed any reliable mechanism for identifying autism outside of saying they were traumatized and shamed autistics were in these particular ways and developed these patterns of behavior. Right. And so it's just, it's just really, I mean, it's kind of messed up, right to live in a world where that's the only way that we can tell who's autistic is if they're damaged enough by the world that, that we can identify these behaviors in them. Um, and so what does it, what would it look like if we were able to, to erase that shame and some ways, in some ways diagnosis is that right? Because you've been taught and, and me less than most, right there. I think part of the reason diagnosis was difficult for me, even as a cis white straight male, um, is that I wasn't shamed as deeply about some of this stuff as a lot of people are. Um, but that doesn't mean I wasn't shamed at all. And there are ways in which I, I, I really, um, like I say, I thought I was deeply weird in a lot of unconnected ways and then come to find out, no, I'm just, I'm just wired in a different way than the world expects. And so I don't react or behave the way that the world anticipates. I think this goes back to some of what we were talking about earlier and 
Um, and it, it's, it's sort of, you know, a paradox because we have such a poor understanding of the image of God mm-hmm. as a society because it, it, we are post-Christendom, but we are still a society deeply informed by white Western Christ- Christendom. Mm-hmm. We tend to cause all this trauma to people who carry and bear and share with us an image of God that we have decided is unacceptable. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also how we know they're there in a, you know, institutional medical sense, but yeah, it's not okay. Right. <laughs> Very I, messed I'm, up. I'm so fascinated. I'm just being, I'm really being very quiet because I'm listening and sort of trying to process this because um, I'm, you know, again, I, my experience, my experience in my area of knowledge is more physical disability. And I'm thinking about the level of shame around the things you have to do when you have a physical disability to cope with the world, not being set up for you. Mm-hmm. And then to tra- and then I'm sort of translating that. And, but, but that's even like, there's all this weird shame and stigma around stuff that you have to do about something that's, that is obvious that other people can, is very obvious to other people. And there's still like a little bunch of stuff around it. Right. And you, if you're, if it is it not, this doesn't happen to everybody, but it is possible to grow up feeling extremely um, weird about all that. And so now I'm sort of translating that over to, well, but what if people don't know what the situation is or what if you don't have a diagnosis or what if it doesn't make sense or you haven't put your, that constellation together of all those different stars that don't seem to fit together. That's a whole, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about how traumatic that would be and, and you know, how, what an impact that would have, you know? And this is, I, I mean, there are a lot of autistic kids who are genuinely traumatized by the world um, and by the, by, by the authority figures in their life. Um, I, I think that's true of just about any disability. I mean, I think you're right that, 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 um, that we, we live in a society in which even though we're all different, even though everybody is, is very, very different, there are acceptable bounds of deviation from some ideal mean which never existed like it's a fantasy we made it all up <laughs> we, yeah. we absolutely did yes but we're we're so beholden to that idea and to the idea that we align with that ideal that it's almost an in affront and almost an, an insult when we're when we're brought face to face with someone who doesn't align with it. Like, how dare you? Um, and I think that's, I think that's true of disability in general. So it's, it's, it's physical and, and mental and cognitive and, and all of it. Um, we just, we, we just have a society that says it is on you to adapt. Um, Yep. And, and, and in some ways, this is the beauty of the beauty of autistic research as it stands is one of the things that we're realizing is what's known as the double empathy problem, right? That one of the things that's considered to characterize autism is a difficulty in communication, particularly social communication, right? Um, so when it comes to carrying on a conversation, autistics sometimes struggle, right? That's the way that it's defined. 
what they're finding is if you get two autistics together, they don't have any trouble conversing. Um, they get a, they they have a they carry on a conversation just fine. The difficulty is, and and same with when you get neurotypicals together. The difficulty is when you get an autistic individual and a neurotypical individual. There's a there's a breakdown in communication, and in some ways it's you know I mean this is an imperfect analogy, but in some ways it's like two different computer operating systems trying to communicate. It's that they're they're speaking different languages. They're approaching conversation with different ends in mind, right? And this is the beauty of it, of autism is that we're gaining this insight about it. Um, that autistics are often viewed as rigid or um, in you know or or uninterested in communicating with neurotypicals or uninterested in communicating even worse. And it turns out. Most autistics are just not interested in playing the social games that neurotypicals find <laughs> uh, find um, meaning in, in some ways, or, or, or view as essential parts of social communication. And so what essentially, the reason I'm bringing this up is, what we're realizing from this research is, the problem isn't that autistics are a problem. The problem really is that neurotypicals expect autistics to relate to them the way that other neurotypicals do. And it just doesn't work that way. And I think that's, I think that's an insight that we can apply. The, the double empathy problem is something that we can apply to virtually all disability, that it's not, this is not a, a problem that people with disabilities have uh, or that disabled people have. This is a problem in between uh, disabled and able-bodied people, um, and, and, and having different expectations and different ways of being. Does that make sense at all? It does. Um, and I'm going to pull us back towards church stuff because as you're talking about that double empathy and the question of like, what is the point of the things we do? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about how many different church divisions can be summarized as, well, the problem is you think we're doing this and I think we're doing this. Right. Or the problem is your goal here is so that you have your ideal experience of church. Right. And I have to look at all of the other people in the congregation and try and, and meet some of everyone's needs most of the time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. Like one of the biggest fights that you will ever, that you see in, in most congregations, especially if they happen to be growing or, or changing even is children in worship, right? Yes. Like to what extent are kids supposed to sit down and shut up? Right. And this is like one of my favorite, one of my favorite images or ideas of worship is in fact medieval cathedrals, right? Because yes. they were everything, right? Like there were they were livestock markets at times. And like everybody was in there doing whatever they darn well pleased, even as the liturgy is happening in some ways. Our liturgy is not is not private prayer time. It's not my opportunity to come to church and be spiritually filled personally to the extent that anything that distracts me from that goal needs to be cast out. That's not what we're doing when we're get, when we gather together. 
Um, and so I think, but I think that's often the way that we in an individualistic Western society approach spiritual worship as though it's not a communal endeavor. It's not about the community coming together with as much mess and chaos as that inevitably entails, but it's in fact my moment to come and get, get strengthened and, and recharged for the rest of the week. It, this almost sounds like a combination of, um, you know, American or North American consumerism combined with a little bit of the building always wins. Yeah. Right. Right. Like our buildings are set up where this is, this is a performance and you shut up and watch what's happening on the stage or whatever. All, and also we think that this is supposed to be like done our way, the way we want it for me. You know, it's, it's a little bit, it's, a little bit of both of both things. I mean, Western Christians get really confused when they walk into a worship space that has no pews. Right. And they walk into like an, you know, when you walk into an Eastern Orthodox worship space, mm -hmm. what's happening here? What do I do here? And they really get confused when the liturgy stretches into that third hour. Right. Right. <laughs> You mentioned John Swinton, who, if you are disability theology spaces, is one of the current big names. Um, actually, I think he just got appointed chaplain to the Queen. Did he really? Part of that team. Yeah. That's awesome. And he's at the University of Aberdeen, and there's a whole program in disability theology you can take there, which looks amazing. And people who have taken it are writing and doing some really amazing things. It is a practical theology program, though, and you have made the connection between that and the liturgical theology where the Anglican Church tends to, like, park our tent for good reasons and occasionally complex results. Sure. And this has been one of my, like, unresolved challenges <laughs> is as someone who really loves our liturgy, it's also really problematic and asking questions that challenge that and that change that are really hard because we don't see it because we have been praying these prayers for so long. Mm -hmm. um, have you found other resources that address some of the liturgical ableism? Have you, how did you make that connection? I'll be honest. I, I, um, I haven't come across a ton of those to be, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, Neither have I, but maybe maybe you found the ones I have. <laughs> I think. I mean, I think it's a. I think it's potentially a growing area of interest. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that because I see more people concerned with it and addressing it sort of piecemeal. Um, I haven't identified or, or come across any more, we'll say, systematic reviews of our liturgy and our liturgical life and our, our ritual in order to, to say what are the ways in which, um, in which this is problematic or at issue. In part, I, I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm hopefully going to pursue a PhD at some point, um, I'm in the midst of that application process because I want to, I want to do 
systematic theology around the topic of theological anthropology, specifically in light of autism. And I want to do that because so much of our theology around disability currently is practical theology, right? It's about how does this, how does this operate on the ground? And to me, and this is, this is, that's a, that's a very good approach and a very important approach and probably without doubt the best place to start. But I'm interested in the wildly impractical things that, that, um, the questions that are, that are existential in some ways, like how do we redefine what it means to be a bearer of the image of God in a way that doesn't exclude anyone? Because I think until we do that, then any prayer that we craft that tries to explore the concept of the Imago Dei is going to be broken or incomplete. And I don't, I, 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 there are some conceptions out there that I think are less of an issue than others, but I haven't seen a lot of like systematic theology or liturgical theology that's done from a disability theology perspective. It tends mostly to be pastoral theology and, and more recently biblical theology. Um, and both of those are really, really important and probably more central than what I'm interested in, but, um, but they don't, they don't trickle down quite as readily to our liturgical life, for example. So you mentioned in your, you mentioned in your bio that you're really interested in, um, formation and discipleship, actually, you talked a little bit about teaching mm -hmm. and that's part of that, but it's mm -hmm. not, um, it's not, I don't think it's all of it. I mean, there's, there are other pieces to formation and discipleship. So for, from a practical standpoint, when mm -hmm. you try to put this all together, your interest in, in uh, theological, the theology of um, disability, in our understanding of anthropology, systematics, all that, what is it? that you would like to see happening regarding formation, regarding discipleship in the church. It's not happening now. Um, wow. That's a, uh... I will offer you other easy questions if you'd like. You know? No, I mean, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I feel like I need to ask chocolate or vanilla ice cream to give you an easy question because that was a really hard question. So, so one of the things, um, this is this is an imperfect analogy. One of the books I'm also reading right now is um, "Punished by Rewards" by Alfie Cohn, which is about how rewards in in with the workplace and in school actually functionally don't do what we want them to, and in fact are often counterproductive. They take away intrinsic motivation and replace it with extrinsic motivation. So they'll work as long as the rewards are there, and then they and then they don't work. Uh, and in fact, you're left enjoying that thing less and being less competent at that at that particular skill than you were beforehand or than you would be if someone hadn't offered those sorts of rewards. Um, I bring that up because in the course of that book, one of the things that he mentions is that um, for third and fourth grade students, um, the accessibility of a text was much less important than their actual interest than the student's actual interest in the text. That in fact, it was, I think he said something like 30 to 40 times more uh, effective if they were interested in it than if the, than if the text was, was accessible. 
right? That's the, um, if I, if I could do one single thing, especially for the Episcopal church and the mainline, um, is get us to love scripture again, because I don't think that we always do that. And there is, there is a, there is an upper limit to how much we can actually, we can actually be formed by our engagement with scripture and our encounter with God in scripture, if we don't actually love scripture. Um, so to me, that's one of the most dire problems I think that we have is, and we often frame this in terms of biblical literacy, right? Like how well do we know scripture? And I think the reason we don't know scripture is because we don't love scripture because we think that there are portions of scripture that have that don't have good news for us and so we don't read the minor prophets for example and we don't read a lot of the old testament and we don't read anything outside of love your neighbor as yourself and um those sorts of you know a few passages that we really tend to focus on so like if if nothing else if i could do nothing else i would i would try my hardest to to get people to to uh, to really help the Holy Spirit set people on fire with excitement and love for Holy Scripture, because it it is so deeply life giving, and we've used it to such. Um, we, I mean, we've used it in such horrific ways that we've done damage and we've led people astray and we've caused people to to disengage from Scripture and from the church and from engagement with God, and. <laughs> And it's not meant to be that. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to all the biblical scholars out there who are, who are really grappling with that um, and leading people to realize, hey, the way that we've used this is pretty wrong. <laughs> and, and in fact, maybe even the opposite of, of how we should have been using this. Um, but if I had to start somewhere, that's where I would start. Um, and I don't know exactly how to do this, but I'll, it's sort of a running joke around St. Francis. Um, almost every sermon I end up saying, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. <laughs> um, I do that a lot too. <laughs> so I see, I like, I, I really like that because I feel like I'm always the earnest one. who's like, okay, so guys, I love this story. Let's yeah. talk about this story. Yeah. <laughs> but this one's fascinating. <laughs> Right. I love this. Or my, yeah, my other one is, um, is usually something like sometimes I, I open the lectionary, I open the, I open the, I open the book and I look to see what it is this week and I go, oh my gosh. But then once I figure, once I uh, look at it and read it, it's so fascinating. I can't wait to tell you. And they think of, they just, you know, I don't know. They shake their heads at me sometimes, but what my husband and I, say especially coming out of our experience as activists like if you let it inform your life and vice versa well it'll it'll be like everything's dancing like it sparkles it's really exciting so thinking about disability theology and scripture where do you can you give an example of something that you get really excited about is that is good news regarding disability and scripture uh, we just did this five-part series on script on um Bible and disability and had some really interesting conversations, but I'd love to hear what other people have to say. I have a, I have a few different ones that I'm trying to think of which one would be, <laughs> would be easiest or best to convey. I think, you know, one of the ones that, that always, that I always come back to, or the one that I always come back to is, um, 
is uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel, right? Um, or wrestling with the Lord, depending on how you're reading that particular passage. But um, this idea that the moment at which not just Jacob, but all of Jacob's people, the chosen people of God, are given the name by which they will be known in the world, that's a moment of disability, right? Um, so there is a, to, to my mind, there is a sense in which disability, we, we, I'll say we, meaning the wider church, we often treat disability as though it's a fringe issue, right? As though it's a niche concern, but it is central, central to the gospel witness. Um, disability is not, it's not just tragedy. It's not just a problem. It's not just a sort of sticking point in our theology, but it's, it's the moment at which Jacob comes to be known as Israel and God's chosen people are given their name, you know? That would be one of those where I step into the pulpit and I go, oh, I love this story. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I love, I, I actually I love that story. Um, and that was not one I thought of, would have thought of off the top of my head. So that's, I love that you brought that up. Um, before we go, or before we get too much further along, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your podcast. Oh, sure. So uh, I host along with David Sinden, who is an organist. He was a, a co-worker of mine um, initially at um, St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Ladue, Missouri, which is just outside of St. Louis. Um, it is it is mostly his work. I'll say um, I I talk with him. He is uh, he is the the brains behind it um, in just about every possible way. But uh, we talk about Episcopal liturgy, Episcopal and Anglican liturgy and music. It's called All Things Right and Musical, R-I-T-E and Musical. Uh, and we talk about liturgy and music, um, particularly from an Episcopal or Anglican lens. Um, we try and, you know, mix it up and do some discussion of, you know, why things are the way that they are and some, uh, you know, if there's breaking liturgical news or particular uh, holidays or feast days coming up or, or that have just occurred and, and there, you know, there are often trends in the church, right? Um, so uh, if there, if there anything like that, then we'll try and, we'll try and at least talk about it. He's a, uh, David's a lot of fun. He's a, um, a, a musical genius in a lot of ways. <laughs> he, uh, he does all the music for our podcast, which is all sort of eight bit style um, hymns basically. And it's phenomenal. <laughs> it is, uh, I have to tell you how much I appreciate the beginning. You know, first of all, the, every time I hear the name, it makes me laugh every time I hear it, because of course it's a play on the old hymn, all things bright and beautiful. Right. But, um, but I, I was so excited when I went to listen to it and there was an eight bit version of all of the hymn. <laughs> I was like, yes, they did it. Oh, that's fantastic. I was, <laughs> anyway, I was overly excited about it. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I don't blame you. I get excited every time I, I hear Very the cool. final cut and he's got the music in there. I'm like, oh, there's, that's where he went with it. That's great. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, so all things right and musical, um, and it's very it, some good stuff in there, and it's nice. Um, 
I, I, you know, I was listening to your Ash Wednesday podcast and I was like, I thought, wow, wait a minute. There are some things in there that I haven't thought of before. You know, we get into our routines and we get overwhelmed by parish ministry. And sometimes, you know, maybe, I don't know, speaking for myself, I miss some opportunities to hear some new information or other ways of thinking about things. So, And I, you know, the, the most, the awesome thing about that podcast is I've had a couple of friends or listeners who have said, I've, I've thought about this and used this in a sermon or, or talked about this or, or done something differently for this feast day because of listening to your podcast. And like, I, I try to be very intentional about the fact that if there is a right way to do it, I don't know what it is. Right. Um, I, I don't think that there is a right way. I think there's, you know, occasionally best practices around certain things or, or things that we should, that, that might do more harm than good. But for the most part, I think, I think most of us are that way that we get locked into a certain way of doing things and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you really need to see it in order to see it anew, to see that, that feast day fresh or to see that holiday fresh, you have to do something a little bit differently just to really appreciate what's actually happening because otherwise it just becomes the same sort of thing. Robin, do you have any other questions? I think that's <laughs> all of the questions I have for today. You should definitely come back and we should talk about more liturgical disability <laughs> stuff, though. Right on, right on. I would, I would love to. Um, this is, right. it, I think it's an important conversation. I think that we're, um, we're really just scratching the surface on it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think... Uh, there are more and more people thinking about it, which I think is an absolutely good thing. Um, but I think we still have a long way to go. Yeah. Thank you so very much for your time and yes, um, for being here. Thank you all so much for having me. for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners to talk about faith and disability with. Special thanks again to Ian for his time talking with us. Stephanie, you said you had a couple thoughts about this, this chunk of the, our conversation. Absolutely. Um, this conversation was so interesting that we wound up splitting it in, of course, into two episodes. So um, a couple of different things. One thing I was thinking as I was reviewing our audio, I was thinking that all of our guests, including Ian, um, and this is our 12th episode, which is mind-boggling. Exciting. Yeah, really, really <laughs> mind-boggling, really exciting. All of our guests have offered both a perspective on disability and faith, disability and theology, um, but they have also offered just a plain, really interesting perspective, lots of good wisdom just on faith in general. Mm -hmm. I've been reminded over and over again that when we make an effort to include voices that have historically been left out, we gain so much that's so much broader than whatever specific issue they might be here to talk to us about. And I was reminded 
again, as I was listening to this episode um, and as Ian was talking about, for example, um, Jacob wrestling and what we learned from that. And then also about teaching our congregations, the, just the love of scripture, partially related to disability, but not entirely. And yet um, really interesting and helpful. I agree. I think this is one of the common misconceptions about disability theology or even just disabled people that our area of interest sort of shrinks down to the things that directly touch disability when it's really sort of the flip and disability is everywhere and all of the things touch it. And I I know I was explaining this to a colleague recently, like because I care about disabled people, I am also to do that. Well, I have to care about racism and LGBTQ issues and environment and climate change and immigration issues. Like, I, I can't actually care about people who are everywhere if I don't care about all of the things. And in the church, that means I care about how we teach and tell and love our Bible stories because when we love them well, that's right. they're all the richer for knowing about disability and being able to see things through that. The other thing I really, really value him's willingness to share with us is how helpful it was to have an awareness and a familiarity with disability theology. Some of the key things about that prior to his own diagnosis or even to his child's diagnosis and that that helped make that worldview shift that can be, but it's not always a part of a diagnosis less jarring. So I'd really like everyone to understand that we care about this for people because it will make people's lives less hard at moments that are not always easy. Right. Yes. And I, I think it does come back a little also to what you're saying about caring about all of these intersecting issues. Um, and I think Ian does a good job of modeling this thing of um, caring about something before it was a hundred percent related to what was going on in his own life. He cared about it because it was something that affected a lot of people and he thought he should know about it. Um, yeah, and I think that's a good mo- thing to model for all of us because for all of us there are issues that maybe we feel are not exactly directly related to us, but they're related to the world that we serve, and that's good enough. Um, yep. And so I, I think that all all those pieces really fit together. There was one other thing that I was thinking about, and that is the idea, of course, that we hear it all the time, but really meaningful when it's embodied. And that is that representation matters. Mm -hmm. Our guests have all modeled this in different ways. Um, But, you know, Ian uh, has thought a lot. It seemed like he's thought a lot about what it means that representation matters. And he's thought a lot about what it means to be publicly autistic Mm -hmm. and a clergy person. Um, And I thought that he brought a really interesting view. And I learned a lot. Yeah. The other thing I would add from that is I enjoyed the fact he shared that it, he wants to be publicly a clergy person and an autistic person. And he also took time before rushing out to make sure he understood that. Or, and maybe he would describe that, but he gave himself time to think about that and internalize that before, not that you have to, but that you can. You can disclose at the time you are ready to 
it doesn't have to be immediately. I think I do want to mention again, um, all things right and musical, Mm -hmm. because that's an opportunity um, to hear some really thoughtful and interesting discussions about liturgy. And as I said, in this episode, sometimes we just kind of get in a rut with what we're doing and we haven't had a chance to give um, particular liturgy or the way we do something thought in, in a while because parish ministry gets overwhelming. And, um, they have some really fascinating conversations on that podcast. So just want to plug that podcast again, all things right and right, R-I-T-E, and musical. And I'm still very happy that even after like the second half of this conversation, we're still looking forward to having Ian back to talk about more yeah. disability, theology, liturgy things, again, at a, a later to be determined date. But I'm, I'm already looking forward to that conversation. listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lenni Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If you like The Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealtar.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar and join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at AccessibleAltar at gmail.com. Thank you.